Hello, darling. It's time to close the curtains, put the kids to sleep, and go change into your favorite negligee. Prepare yourself for some adult swimming. Cause we're gonna talk about sex in Loop on the Fun. get into the nitty-gritty of this minisode, a word of warning. While I personally think that sex should be a fun and undramatic part of a human experience, I completely understand that the subject, especially when talking about a fictional franchise, can make some people uncomfortable. In an effort of intellectual honesty, I will also tackle the difficult subject of sexual violence. So please, if you are bothered by any of these topics in any way, please do not listen to this episode and refrain from complaining online. I will be forever grateful. That being said, I think it is safe to say that sex, or at the very least its evocation, is integral to Lupin III's franchise. Since its introduction in 1967 under the pen and brush of Monkey Punch, we had countless examples of nudity, partial and integral, of characters having sex or trying to have sex and comically failing. Lupin be horny on main is what I'm saying. But how and why is it relevant? In our mostly sexless present, it can be hard to accept sex as a common feature of storytelling. We are so used of seeing sex as exploitation or cheap titillation in both movies and advertisement that we forgot its narrative power. Doesn't help that mass media is treating adults more and more like children. Lupin III was created at a crucial moment in history marked by several episodes of rebellion, insurrection and the clash of traditional morals with more progressive mindsets. Japan was not spared and some mangaka tackled these topics, culminating into the Gekiga genre. These stories were full of social and adult themes, including sex. The magazine Weekly Manga Action, where Lupin was pre-published, featured such stories. Lupin just happened to take a more parodic approach. Part of the fun in the Lupin the Third franchise is that sex is the setup for many gags. To paraphrase Henry Bergson, there's nothing in humor that isn't inherently human. Even Monkey Punch's choice of censorship is designed for humor. Genitals are rarely fully exposed in manga, 
Hantai connoisseurs are well acquainted with the different techniques used to cover the naughty bits, like black bars, mosaics, etc. Monkey Punch took the rather original option of using the Western symbols of male and female genitals based on Mars and Venus. Monkey Punch revealed in the third volume of Ishiku Ipan that he was inspired by his high school days when he and his brother Teruhiko were X-ray's assistants. This choice of representation allows for many gags based mostly on male insecurity but also serves to illustrate the moment of, let's say, sexual connection in a visually striking way without being too graphic. One of the series' most treasured routine, the boxing glove on the spring, is technically the punchline to what started as a sex scene. It encapsulates a sort of golden rule for Lupin, in that most of his advances will warrant him some form of comeuppance. Which brings me to possibly the toughest part of his whole topic. Sexual violence. Our current climate cannot be dismissed and it is clear that some of the chapters from the original manga, and even some scenes in the anime if we want to be fair, get too close to rape for comfort. I personally read all of the original manga to see which scenes could be classified as rape, and while I don't consider myself an authority on the subject, far from it, I could really find only one. And Lupin was not responsible for it. It was Inspector Zenigata in disguise. That doesn't make it any better, of course, but the scene in question is not made to entice and is clearly depicted as a horrible thing. Plus, like it or not, but we are not supposed to like Inspector Zenigata in the manga. Yes, sometimes he's a buffoon, but most of the time he's the antagonist. Nonetheless, there are several other occurrences of attempted assault and coercion, but most of them end up badly for the perpetrator. Monkey Punch was very well aware of the seedier aspects of his work and wasn't above self-parody and more importantly, self-criticism. On that note, I do agree that rape as a simple plot device should be a thing of the past. All that being said, the women of the franchise are rarely defenseless. Fujiko uses sex and seduction as a very effective weapon, taking advantage of many a man's blind libido to get what she wants, be it jewels, secrets or the man's comically dark demise. In that respect, the manga and its sequel Shin Lupin Sansei are about the war of the sexes. A popular mindset about the sexual revolution of the late 1960s when both men and women had to rethink their roles in society. Rings a bell, doesn't it? When it comes to the anime, the franchise inevitably had to restrain itself a bit. Television in early 1970s Japan would not have allowed an animated series to go as far as its model of paper and ink. There is a reason why the 1969 pilot film was originally created as a theatrical adaptation. Movies could get away with a lot more than TV. But not enough, apparently, since the sexual aspects were allegedly part of the pilot's failure to secure fundings. The series would suffer censorship abroad to varying degrees. And yet, Japan is not a prudish nation, far from it. The respected studio Nikatsu, the oldest one in Japan, was even famous for a very peculiar subcategory of movies called Pinku Eiga. 
These so-called pink movies would vary greatly in tone and style, but all of them included eroticism. One of such Pinku Ega probably deserves the trophy for best movie title in history. Inflatable Sex Doll of the Wastelands from 1967. I could write poems about that title. The movie was written and directed by Atsushi Yamatoya. Don't know who that is? Well, maybe you know his friend and frequent collaborator Seijun Suzuki. Yes, that's Suzuki. The genius iconoclast, director of many genre-bending movies, including Branded to Kill, which also came out in 1967 and was co-written with Yamatoya. I had the chance to watch Branded to Kill on the big screen at the International Fantastic Film Festival in Neuchâtel, Switzerland. And it is pretty much Lupin III's spiritual brother. It features Joe Shishido as a professional killer in what starts as a Yakuza flick, only to devolve into a farce, then into a surreal nightmare. A naked femme fatale with melancholic eyes is superposed with a picture of many a pinned butterflies. If the mention of nude women and butterflies rings a bell, it's because Yamatoya also contributed to the scenario of Mystery of Marmo, which featured a lascivious Fujiko and many shiny butterflies. Yamatoya also worked on episodes of Part 1, 2 and 3, as well as The Legend of the Gold of Babylon, fittingly directed by Suzuki himself. In other words, the blood of Pinku Eiga flows through Lupin's veins. Remnants of that genre can even be glimpsed in the recent Lupin Zero prequel series, where charm and violence are intertwined. In episode 3, we see the elderly Arsène Lupin surrounded by bodacious babes and willing to get rough with them if they try to cross the old thief. Fetishism is one thing, but what about sensuality? What about pleasure? Is serious sex absent from the franchise? Consensual sex that doesn't end in a gag is indeed harder to find, but we have some noteworthy examples. We can mention the aptly named Sexy Lupin Sansei, a five-chapters manga series written by Toshimishi Okawa and Yasushi Hirano, and drawn by Monkey Punch himself. It was published as a market tie-in to the Pink Jacket series back in 1984. Here, Lupin meets up with several beautiful women and becomes intimate with most of them. One particular chapter shows a prolonged and beautifully illustrated night of consensual passion that shows how both Lupin and his creator can also be gentle. In animation, we had Lupin and Fujiko's first night together in First Contact, even though considering the unreliable nature of this TV special narrator, its veracity should be taken with a grain of salt. Closer in time, we have the spin-off series A Woman Called Fujiko Mine from 2012. The Fujiko series shows all kinds of sexual situations, some of them tender, others less so, but usually taken seriously. The series tackles themes of sexual frustration, coercion, infidelity, fate orgasm, misogyny both outward and internalized, homosexuality and the horrors of objectification. Episode 4, titled Visi d'arte, visi d'amore, 
rather intelligently weaves its sexual themes into the narrative by taking cues from Puccini's opera La Tosca, itself featured in the episode. There, Fujiko has sex with Zanigata in exchange for her release, in a way to mirror Tosca being coerced by Chief of Police Baron Scarpia in order to free her fiancé. Except that, in the episode, the corrupt lawman is not murdered and the after-sex banter between Fujiko and Zenigata shows mutual understanding. The use of Monkey Punch's trademark symbolism during the act helps us distancing ourselves. The overarching narrative of the Fujiko series works as a sort of Trojan horse. Through Fujiko's encounters with the main antagonists, we are made to believe she had a traumatic past, including abuse at a very young age, a rather classic trope. The conclusion reveals that this sordid origin was but an illusion, implanted in Fujiko's mind as a form of transfer. In the end, Fujiko doesn't and never will need a traumatic reason to justify her behavior. Using trauma as a way to somewhat absolve a sexually promiscuous character is a condescending and misogynistic chip trick, and director Sayo Yamamoto deconstructs this trope beautifully. The series' message is powerfully sexual and feminist, as our main protagonist, freed from her shackles, proudly proclaims her joy of casual sex without any puritanical shame. As times change and the heteronormative model is put into question, the desire for a better and more diverse inclusion of homoeroticism in fiction intensifies, even in Japan. The Fujiko series opened the field by making our heroine bisexual and with the introduction of the tragic figure that is Oscar. Still, the series used fetishes and imagery inherited from the Pinku Eiga of yore. The introduction of Albert d'Andrézy in part 5, an openly gay man in the Lupin canon, is a start, but the franchise, while flexible, might take a while to catch up to modern sensibilities. The Lupin III franchise went through relatively sexless phases too. Most of the 90s and 2000s were pretty tame with maybe a few panty shots here and there, with the exception of a surprisingly bold scene in the otherwise family-friendly movie Farewell to Nostradamus in 1995. Rarely would Fujiko show such physical tenderness to Lupin. We also get a nice striptease scene in the mediocre special Secret of the Twilight Gemini in 1996, but again these were small snippets compared to what we had a few decades prior. Things were so stale that when the Fujiko series came out in 2012, it was almost a shock for some and a return to form for others. Part 4 stayed cautious, while Part 5 gave us back some of the dangerous sensuality with added commentary. The character of Ami, in particular, shows how the young generation has a warped sense of sexuality overly present and awkward at the same time. Part of Ami's arc is to relearn how to enjoy childhood, which means realizing that sex is a serious thing that should not be sought after at such a tender age. We can say a lot about the franchise's sexual themes, but accusing it of perpetuating lolicon culture really isn't one. Lupin himself has said on several occasions that he is only attracted to fully adult women. 
In Castle of Cagliostro, Lupin is actively fighting the pedophiliac count and goes out of his way to treat the young Clarice with respect and chastity. The little girl Julia, in Farewell Nostradamus, may feel like a lolicon bait at first, but she is never sexualized and the characters will actually go out of their way to protect her. The Fujiko series is an unambiguous plea against child abuse. Because not all butterflies represent beauty. The Takeshi Koike movies are probably the horniest modern version of Lupin, with completely fetishistic scenes that would make Yamatoya proud. The club scene from Jigen Daisuke's gravestone comes to mind. It features a monstrous robot threatening a naked Fujiko with its drill-shaped phallus inside a giant glass cube. This scene created some uproar among Western fans, even though Fujiko more or less had the situation under control, and Lupin's rescue feels less like a knight saving the damsel in distress, and more like a distraction for Fujiko to take advantage of. Goemon's blood spray gave us the handsomest version of the stoic samurai, and I am sure his muscular body drenched in blood awakened something in many of you. Don't lie. I can feel it. Finally, Fujiko's lie puts the femme fatale back in the forefront, taking full advantage of her weaponized charms with Eros and Thanatos closely intertwined. The CGI movie Lupin III the First was aimed at an international family audience and therefore lacks any sort of sexual undertones, even less so than Cagliostro, which is saying something. Unless we count Fujiko's seduction of Nazi soldiers to get out of her shackles, and even then it was mostly played for laughs. Part 6 played it safe with sex, while getting bolder with horror. And Lupin Zero reminded us of raunchier times, without making it its prime directive either. In other words, sex in Lupin III remains an elusive ingredient, just as it is in reality. Who knows what the future will bring us? Will we get even more suspicious of sex? Will we finally relax over the whole thing? One thing is sure, Lupin is one horny monkey. And I doubt he will ever stop looking for some good, hot and steamy time. And I, for one, am here for it. And that is all for me. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to give us a 5-star review on Apple Podcast and listen to our episodes old and new. You can find me on Twitter, Mastodon and Blue Sky at William Barbe, B-A-B-E-Y, on DeviantArt as Shin Red Deer, S-H-I-N-R-E-D-D-E-A-R, and you can support us on our official coffee page. I would like to thank my friends and co-hosts Natalie, Emma and Drew for their extremely helpful input and proofreading of this script. I also want to thank Twitter user MonkeypunchArt for the Ishiku Ipan anecdote. And most of all, thank you, dear listeners. See you next time, Lupanti folks. And remember, when you get that funny feeling, don't be afraid. Enjoy the ride. Bring some ties, plenty of lube, and maybe a boxing glove on a spring. <laughs>